Welcome to the latest episode of the Ride Boundless Podcast, where I sit down with renowned movie producer Robert Weston. This episode is brought to you by Ride Clean, a company that provides an eco-friendly cleaning product for your ride. Visit their website at www.rideclean.co. Use promo code RBPODCAST for 25% off plus free shipping. But that's not all. Make sure to check out the rideboundless.net website for updates, sponsors, collaborations, and soon-to-be-announcing events. Our website is the go-to destination for things related to our podcast and more. Now back to our guest, Robert Weston. We dive into his journey and personal experience in the movie industry, from his start in horror genres to producing comedy drama, science fiction extravaganzas, and action thrillers. Robert has worked with some of the biggest names in the industry, including Charlie Theron, Christopher Plummer, and Michael Radford, and much, much more. We also explore the art of storytelling, his creative process, and the challenges he faced along the way. You won't want to miss this insightful conversation. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Ride Boundless podcast, sponsored by Ride Clean, and don't forget to visit rideboundless.net for more updates and exciting news. Boom, boom. Rob, thank you for being on the Ride Boundless podcast. Thank you for making it in the afternoon. Where are you coming from? Pleasure. West Hollywood. West Hollywood? Oh, yeah, that could be a little daunting. Laurel Canyon? Yeah. Man, that road. Yeah. That road. It's so busy, right? It, it, it's crazy. It, it's crazy because you don't even notice it, like, until it's nighttime and there's no traffic. And you're like, wait a minute, this is like a seven-minute drive. Like, you know, seven, ten-minute drive. But during the day, it's it's daunting. It's like a 40-minute drive. Right. And it's what five miles? Four five miles. You're close to Jaime as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's Crown down the, the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah he's yeah. down the street. The closer you like, pull the mic back just a little bit. Yeah. Um, and we were just talking about how we met. We met through uh, Jaime invited us, and we went to the LAFC uh, the match, which was uh, it was a great experience, man. Yeah. yeah. And you were educating me on the chat API, I think it was. Oh yeah, yeah. It's amazing. Have you played with it? I have. Yeah, it's great. Isn't it incredible? What, what have you done with it? I did a, um, I, I actually put one of my scripts, obviously from a movie level, yeah. um, I fed that in there just to kind of see what it would do if I said, um, make it funnier, right? Yeah. And it did. And it was kind of arguable what actually is funnier, right? What, right? what was already there or what they actually did with it. But it's very cool, man, i got to say. It's, it's insane, but like... It's all about the commands, because if you could also say, make it funnier as if Joe Rogan was uh, telling the joke, or make it more intricate like, you know, Steve Jobs would on a project for, and you tell it, you say, take the identity of, you know, Mark Cuban, yeah, you yeah. know, as a, as a business developer, and now you're going to be my marketing uh, manager, and I need you to come up with a campaign along with a blog and a script. Mm -hmm. And it mm -hmm. fucking does this. It's, it, it's, it's madness. It's super fucking madness. And it's, I get, I know it's going to replace a lot of jobs because obviously they're comparing it back to the conversation we had before, which yeah. was, you know, um, what is that? Um, like before, uh, you know, we were talking about how Amazon went automated yeah. and they fired yeah. a bunch of people. This is going to take a lot of copywriters and marketing people. It's and the future though, right? It, it's the future, but look at how many tools it provides for, for creative. Yeah. It's like yeah. you either adapt to it or you just say, fuck this, this is my enemy. I don't want nothing to do with it. I think there's going to have to be some adaptation done for sure. Right. Cause it feels like that's the way the world is moving overall. Right. Yeah. Um, are you hearing me? Okay. Is it dipping in and dipping out? Uh, yeah, it, that's that's why you got to be a little closer. Closer, yeah, cause, better. Yeah, because otherwise I'll try to pick up some sounds. Yeah, yeah, okay. And, and that's why I like about the headphones because we can see what's actually we can hear what's going yeah. on. Yeah, that's perfect. You can hear me all right now, right? Yeah, yeah, I can hear you perfectly. All right. Yeah, I, I I've been using this for for so many things now, like responding emails. One one advice that or one thing that happened to me was. There was this dude that was kind of bothering me, and he was riding me, riding me, riding me, and it was, it was getting really annoying and daunting. And I was like, you, you need to stop. And they're like, no, no, you need to, like, you know, uh, respond to us. And I was like, I, I, I don't. Anyways, I had an attorney friend. And I was like, dude, can you just get this guy off my ass? And he's like, oh, man, yeah, you know, I could do it, but it's like I got to type up emails and make phone calls and this, that, that, $5,000. <laughs> right. I was like, $5,000? 
chat GBT, you know, I was like, hey, get this guy <laughs> off my ass. Here's the it last works. email. Never heard back. This was like three, four months ago. And I was hearing from this person like once a week. Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and done. Yeah. Done. Like shut down as a citizen of America. You know, you're not complying, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> stop your stop. It's, it's, it's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I love that. And one more funny story is I just read an article that the first AI attorney is getting sued by attorneys for practicing law without a license. Oh, <laughs> how? how? <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that must be the software developer getting sued, though, right? How does that? How does that work? Yeah, I don't know. That's so cool, though. Great story, man. I mean, I think that's that's obviously the future, and there's going to be so many pitfalls with it, and so much development which needs to happen to kind of hone these things, right? So they provide. I mean, it's this, it's the same, I guess, in terms of Uber and those kind of things, right? Just in terms of how things have actually evolved, where you are having to. Things are changing. The world and the landscape changes, right? Right. Um, and suddenly we're, you know, we're, we're going to be driving electric cars. Like we talked about when we were behind me, right? The car drives itself now, things like that. Um, and I think that's the future. It's going to be less of us actually being able to do that physical kind of work. Um, and it's going to be a, a situation where, from our perspective, you either have to, it's like when you get onto Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, you have to either kind of embrace it or sometimes you just kind of get left behind, right? And I think that's going to be one of the things with AI, right? I think somehow it's coming and it's going to be here to stay and we're going to have to get on that train. Otherwise, it's um, you're going to get left behind, right? Yeah. It's just so impressive how they introduced this in November and how fast it's, it's, it's adapted to, to everybody's life right now. Mm. Like this is the number one thing talked about everywhere. Yeah. Every yep. social media post, every news article, you know, has something with uh, Trump's getting arrested and chat GPT. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like that's, yeah. that's like, and then Biden <laughs> fell again or whatever. Yeah. You know, but uh, it, it's, it, it, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I just paid like a hundred dollars just for, it was like 1000 commands yep. to tell yeah. chat GPT on how to write stuff. <laughs> And it's, you, you could say, it has a mode called DAN, mm. and DAN stands for, like, it, it's ChatGBT's evil brother comes out. Right. The dark side, right. The dark side. And you could start <laughs> writing. Like, there's so many movie That's ideas. so good. Yeah, they're like, <laughs> like I, I was reading about about your, your history and your films and stuff, which we'll mm. get into, but, like, you could write totally a fucking movie about this. Yeah, it sounds like a horror film straight away, right? Straight out. Yeah. Yeah. Straight out, and 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 the, how fast it's learning, and then once you, they create machines, and the machines start. There was a piece of artwork since I have this artwork, and we're talking about this. Mm-hmm. There was a piece of artwork. I forgot what it was called, but it was a machine that they created with a certain amount of oil to function. Right. Okay. But the machine that the the creator created the machine with a leak, so it's leaking oil. But the robot knows it's leaking oil, and it's and it has uh, like a, it's like an excavator, mm. and it's grabbing the oil to like refill to live because it knows that if it runs out of oil, it it's done. That's very cool, right? Yeah, yeah. it's it's very small. cool. But it's it's sad because you're like you know you're like fuck this thing's fighting to survive. Like yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it, it's constantly like. You know, and obviously the oil gets further and further, and they can't get it to where they want it to be. It, mm. it, it's it's kind of, but it was it, it's it's beautiful and sad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful because it's just a machine. Like, get over it, guys. I but it's sad because you read it and you're like, whoa. You're on the money though. I mean, there's definitely something around that from a project level I could see happening. Remember, I got pitched a movie at one point by this. It was a horror film, and it was um it was about it was about um GPS. What would happen if you got in the car and the GPS basically took over and just killed everyone that got in the car? So it would direct them off a cliff and stuff like that, right? And it was quite cool, but I kind of always was looking at thinking, is it sustainable? Is it one gag? And then the audience kind of knows what they're into, right? And then they kind of lose interest. But I can see the same thing when you're talking about chat, right? Same sort of thing. Um, Where there is, you can kind of come at those things early and say that that it's it's the ghost in the machine, Right, in terms of what you're trying to achieve there. But this is the world we're getting into. Robots and you know, and um and and self driving cars. Self driving cars and that's the world and as I said, you just gotta get into it. I mean, see this stuff on YouTube with the flying guys and these days over in Dubai and flying policemen and stuff like that's just nuts, man, in terms of the way the world's moving. But um that's technology, right? It's it's just crazy these days. 
Yeah, it's wild. I I, I got I got a one liner yeah. uh, movie you idea pitch that, me. that I've had. I've had this thing forever. But again, it was I, I had a buddy of mine. He he makes films. He's like, but then what happens in the movie, Robert? Yeah. Right? Yeah. But th- I've always been and this. I've I've been hanging on to this for like fifteen years. But it's like um, opening scene, New York. Uh, cameras going down a building into yeah. a, re- a Chinese restaurant. Right. Chinese restaurant opens up and there's people walking with food back and forth. Mm-hmm. Camera goes all the way to the back of the room and there's a uh, there's a meeting between you know a corporate company. I don't know, whatever, yeah. seven yeah. eight people, and they're talking and bullshitting. We closed the deal. And we did this and ha ha. And Steve, how did you do that? And her face right out. You know whatever whatever. And then uh, you know they're laughing. And then one of the guys goes, uh, "I gotta get out of here." You know. Just had the kid, blah blah blah. You know, I'm late, so he he's running out, and right before he runs out, somebody says, "Hey, don't don't forget your fortune cookie." You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's a Chinese restaurant. Mm-hmm. So he's like, "Ah, oh, thanks, haha." So, anyways, he's walking out. He's putting on his jacket as he walks outside. He opens up the fortune cookie, and he's walking, and it opens and says, "You're gonna die," and a bus fucking hits him. Done. Dude, I love it. It's good. Now I don't know what happens after. Yeah, that. Is, 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 the, is it cursed? Dude, I'm doing I'm doing a movie right now with the creator of Final Destination. Oh like, wow! That's that movie. That could right? be a scene right there. It's, yeah. it's, it it feels like that fits in that world, right? Yeah, yeah, very cool. I like it. Let, let's talk about. Let's see where it progresses to, though, right? What's <laughs> the story? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> what happened before? What happened afterwards? You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. I, like I never got past that. You yeah. Know? So it's like what they call a one-liner. A one-liner. Yeah, pitch. but you know, those are those are the acorns where projects develop from, right? In terms of the way I look at projects, is I when I get given something, or if it's from my genesis. I always have to look at it, and there has to be something which I kind of I, I'm attracted to. I jump into, and it can be an idea like that, a concept like that, or a scene like that. Um, but I have to be able to visualize the trailer, and I have to be able to visualize the poster, right? Um, and then I can see how it might translate to people, right? Um, something like that. It definitely feels like it could be a horror film. It definitely feels like it could be a Final Destination or something like The Ring, where you're there's something which continues as a vessel whether it's the fortune cookie or it's something like that um but that's kind of how i always look at stuff right it's there has to be something which inspires and it makes you start talking thinking right yeah. and then you you think you might have something and you've got to develop it and work it and hone it and you know sometimes it you know it's like it's like a cocktail right you put the ingredients in it either tastes good or it tastes shit yeah that could be good or it could be shit it just depends how it kind of how you mold it and develop it and test it and try things with it, right? Yeah. But I like it. I like the premise. I like yeah, yeah. that it felt very visual in terms of the way you're talking about it. Yeah, I mean, there could yours. be an infringement on copyright on this, yeah. right? We're going on video. <laughs> I got it. It's yours. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I love it, man. But that's good. It's, it's an interesting idea. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's interesting how certain movies get done that you think are not going to work and end up working, and then yeah. the ones that you think are going to work don't work, and then you have movies like Sharknado. Yeah, and it's yeah. it's not Sharknado that's like wow. It's like no, it's part two, part three, part yeah. four. I think they yeah. went to like what part four or five. Yeah. yeah, and and it's like, how does that happen? And you know, and it's and the thing with <laughs> thing with movies like that is it's there. They're so bad, they're good, right? And the audience knows what they're kind of getting into in terms of they're in on the joke. I went to a screening, what, probably about um, maybe a month ago, and have I told you about this? And it was um, a Winnie the Pooh movie, right? Did I tell you about this? And it no. was it was a Winnie the Pooh movie. And the reason I went to it is I know the cinematographer, and he was like a guy from the UK, and he was in town. He said that we're premiering this film, and we made this film for nothing, right? 50 grand they made this movie wow. for, which is insane, right? Yeah. What you can do. That's a YouTube grand. video. That's, I mean, it's just insane. They shot it in eight days and um, they opened that they were talking to the crowd at the beginning. It was like a, a special screening I went to. And they opened the whole thing up by saying, hey guys, um, you know, I want to introduce you to the film. Uh, it's called Blood and Honey. Winnie the Pooh, I think it's called. Um, and we made this movie for eight days. It's not very good, but... Just go with it because it only costs us 50 grand. That was their opening pitch. The whole crowd laughed and it was almost like you were in on the joke, right? When it went to a slightly cornier area or the, you know, you realize there's probably a plot hole. They didn't have enough days to shoot that or cover that. The audience laughed. And it, it I mean, they, I think they opened in Mexico, did like 1.5 million in the first week. Whoa. It was number two at the box office here in the US. Blood and honey. Blood and honey. And I was like, wow, I mean, 
See, when I started, I started in horror. So I know that genre very well. Yeah, I was going to say, real quick, you you did horror, thrillers, comedy, drama, and action. You've done done them all. I did them all. you started in horror. I started in, actually, the first film I was going to do was, um, so when I went to film school, I kind of realized quite quickly it was one of those things where, Everyone goes to film school and they're all going. Everyone wants to be a director. That's kind of what happens. You 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 go there and you think you're going to be the next Steven Spielberg. The reality is we all do different things. We have to figure out what works best for us and our skill set. For me, um, I didn't know I wanted to be a producer. Someone had to point that out to me. It's like you know your best skill set. You should be a producer. So I kind of fell into that. Um, but whilst I was at film school, I started to. They gave us kind of carte blanche on equipment, right? So you could take their equipment out and shoot stuff, et cetera, et cetera. So I would take their equipment and go and shoot videos like corporate videos and branded content stuff, it's called now, um, or music promos and started to make some money kind of doing that. And was almost self-teaching myself because on the course you didn't really learn how to produce. You were kind of just learning everything but that, right? French New Wave cinema and all this kind of stuff. And I kind of came to the conclusion that for me, I would, I could do that stuff. I could learn about that stuff in my own time. But what I really need to know was how to produce, how to do things, right? Right. Um, so the first, the first film I was going to do. So on the back of that, I raised some money from from my own promos, and I put it into music promos and corporates. I put it into launching my production company. And the first film I was going to do was a movie called Where Love Reigns, right? Which is probably not on your research, right? It, it is, is actually. It? Yeah. It is, right? So th- that was the first one I was going to do. Um, and it was, we had, it was about Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. It was psychoanalysis. Um, and get this as a baptism of fire, right? It was Martin Scorsese. It was Kira Knightley, yeah. Adam Rickman. Um, it was bonkers. It was that, that, was my, that was my entry point. And that film... We had two years of trying to make it, and we lost all the finance, tax credits fell apart, and all this kind of boring stuff. But the reality was we realized that the film was, um, it was, the market was scholars because it was Freud and Jung, and we hadn't actually made a film which was commercial enough to be able to, you know, exploit it. So that film died a death. We didn't finish it, never got done. It was just developed, and then we, we just ended the thing. We ran out of money. The option... That's what, crazy that happens. Yeah, we spent we spent 150 grand. We raised, shot a teaser at Ealing Studios, flew the actresses over. A great actress, Sarah Gadden from Canada, um, super talented, um, and Douglas Henshaw from the UK. Shot this teaser. We took it out, tried to sell it. Um, we had a girl called Rako Bradley, fantastic sales agent, who was just sold Monster, um, with Charlize Theron, which had won the Oscar, so that everything was lined up, right? Yeah. Um, and then we, it, it just, we just couldn't get it over the line. Every time we got closer, financing fell apart, or Kira, we lost Kira Knightley, or and this thing would kind of continually happen. Um, and the option was like, I don't know what we were spending. It was like twenty grand every six months, and the the option payment was coming up again. And you know, I'm looking at my bank balance coming straight out of university and music videos and not doing so many of those now and suddenly and my girlfriend at the time is kind of saying hey you know where's the money going kind of thing um what's her name who is she well yeah yeah (laughs) i'm not with i'm I'm happily married now but the uh but that was it was one of those things you're getting faxes for at three o'clock in the morning it doesn't create a great home environment and then the film didn't happen right so what's a fax (laughs) yeah there you go right um there's another horror film um, yeah. so, you know, so it just, it kind of got to a point where I had to make a decision. My decision was, I'm not going to renew that option, which was really painful having spent two years trying to develop this thing and backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. But I had a really great mentor in the business, a guy called Tim Hampton, Tim. Yeah, for 20th Century Fox. 20th Century Fox. He'd here. done Aliens, Chariots of Fire. He was the guy who brought Superman to the studios. Um, and I, I would, cause I, you know, when you come into the film business, it's always I always use this analogy like you're you always feel like you're a you know a boxer but who can't actually be in the ring and fight. You're just kind of standing outside waiting to have your fight, right? Trying to get in that ring. And it's always that way until you actually produce something. Otherwise you can walk down the road and I can tell you I'm a producer, but unless I've actually done it, I've never been in the ring properly, right? And so it's after spending two years developing this thing, it was like, God, it was hell. And, and one of the things which I did to 
try and legitimize myself from a confidence level at the beginning because you don't know anything. You don't know any, the business is, I knew nobody in the business, right, when I began, absolutely no one. So it was like, what can I do to give me some sort of advantage? You know, you're calling up agents and saying, hey, uh, I've got this film, would you read it to see if your client wants to do it? And they're just like, no. <laughs> and it, it's it's not, not a great place to be. So what I decided I would do was, educate myself right so I, I took subscriptions out to variety and screen international which is the equivalent in the uk but like hollywood reporter and i would have a ritual every week which i'd sit in my bath every thursday night and i would get the magazine and i read it page you know cover to cover and every word i didn't understand i'd stop and i'd research it and it started to give me kind of um confidence because i was ed- suddenly educating myself that i would know about what was happening in poland or you know, Bulgaria, and I'd be able to go into meetings and bring that information, and other people didn't have that knowledge. Yeah. So it gave me a lot of confidence, and, but it, it boomeranged on me when this film, the film I was doing, Where Love Reigns, just I decided I wasn't going to renew it. About four or five years on, I, I, you know, I was doing my ritual, Screen International, comes through the post, sit in the bath, haven't looked at it, front cover, um, Freud Jung movie, Dangerous Method, it was called. Oscar Buzz. That was my movie. Really? Uh, yep. And I remember call, I, so different, it, it had Kira Knightley, it had Sarah Gadden, the girl I flew over to be in my teaser. It had my Canadian co-producer, Marty Katz. Love them all. They're all great people and they made what they wanted to do was a great movie. But if, they made this without you or? Different, it was a, a different. But were you aware that? I, I knew that the project had gone and it wasn't exactly the same. It's like when you have two scripts of the same subject, one was a stage play and one was a fic- you know a fictional version which this guy had created and they optioned a different version, right? Um, but what so, so it was so it was kind of brutal on one level because you know they're absolutely fine to do it and their version was probably a better version than what we did. We almost planted an acorn. Um, with this great idea because actors and directors and filmmakers want to make movies about people who are important in history and Freud and Jung were super important people so um, I think from a subject matter and from a character level it was something which people wanted to explore but the thing is just before I was making the decision to ditch the project I was looking you know I was looking at thinking you know I, I can't do it I can't spend another 20 grand on this thing to just keep going on the hope that they're going to figure this out, right? And I entered this project because of a director, right? The director had reached out to my, myself and said, look, he had a producer on it who had passed away and he didn't know what he was going to do, where he was going to go with it. And he reached out to me and he said, look, um, you know, would you help me, right? And I said, oh, I'll come on and I'll help you. So he was the reason why I was doing the project, right? First time director. And when the option was coming for a renewal, I remember saying to um, my partner, and I said, I'm not going to renew it. I just don't, I just can't do it. Financially, it's just crushed me. Uh, so a real baptism of fire. And um, he he was like, yeah, I agree with you. And I, and I said, well, there's only, you know, there's, there's, there's only one way we're going to probably make this film now is to change the director. And that's not something I'm prepared to do because that's just how it is, right? It's the way I entered it and it's the way I'm going out. Simple as that. I'm a, I'm a guy who I say what I do and do what I say. And I entered it because of this guy, I'm going to go out because of this guy. And I told him, the director, that I wasn't going to renew it. And he comes to me and he says, what happens if I don't direct it? If I step aside? And I said, well, if you want to do that, then that's up to you, right? Uh, I'm not never going to ask you to do that. You have to be comfortable that you want to do that. And because the option payment's coming up, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so I, I then said, look, I'll have one. I'll make one call, right? And I'll call if you're game with it, and we'll all, we're we're doing it together. I'll make one call to my Canadian partner, and I have an idea, David Cronenberg, right? We'll see if we can get David Cronenberg to direct. He's a masterful director, and my Canadian partner had just done a movie with him, so I knew the relationship was there. And I called Marty and I said, "What do you think about Cronenberg?" And he said, "Maybe. Let me talk to him, right?" Um, he spoke to Cronenberg, and Cronenberg was doing, I think he was doing Spider, this movie at the time. And Cronenberg came back and was like, look, um, yeah, I like the sound of the project, but I'm not available for like four years or something like that. And for mm. me, it was like, oh, we're done. Right, that was it, we're done. So when the film, this other version of the movie 
got made a dangerous method. Um, the director was David Cronenberg, right? The 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 lead actor was the lead actress was Kira Knightley. It was Michael Fassbender, Viggo Mortensen, um, Sarah Gadden, the actress. As I said, I flew over my Canadian partner on it, and I didn't. You know, I knew that the project happened, but I thought, what? You know, it was it was a it was one of those moments where you think, oh, did I just just completely threw away an Oscar on my first movie? That was my mindset. Ouch. And I, so I call, so I call my mentor, and mm. I said to him, Tim, what? How do I? What do I? What do I take from this? Right? I feel sore about the whole thing. And he says to me, um, you know, it was great advice. He said, trust your instinct. It wasn't your time. It wasn't your time. But your instinct's going to get you there, right? And it was something which made me think, all right. So he's right. I had the instinct. It was a good project, but I wasn't ready, right? So it wasn't. It wasn't my time. So it was a it was one of those stories where I think at the end of it there's a bit of a silver lining because what it did do for me is it made me I need to shoot something. I need to make a movie because I know I can do this. My instincts right. I'm educated. Um but I need to make a movie, right? So um for me it then became a scenario of how do I do that because the traditional roots of financing films it's difficult and it's still difficult till this very day, right? And today I've, I've done, I produce 15 movies now, but it's tough, every one of them, putting them together. Um, um, what was it? Uh, budgeting, totaling over 70 million. It's probably 100 now. Now, I think. right? Yeah, yeah. Mm. But the first one I, the first one I did was um, on the back of this, I had no money. I was just completely done, right? It was like, I have to go and get a job. So, and at the time, this will give you a time stamp of when this was. This was around the time of Napster. Do you remember that? Napster yeah, and LimeWire. So music video budgets, when you're doing stuff for 100 grand, shooting them in two weeks, and you're making 10% back in the day, it's good money. And then suddenly you're in a world where those budgets, because of Napster and LimeWire, are completely slashed, and you're into a world where budgets are now 10 grand, right? So your 10% fee at that point's nominal, right? Mm. Um, and... To add to that, a lot of the labels are then taking the budgets internally and making their own videos, right? So around that time, you start to see music videos that there was no big videos really being made. Um, so I ended up getting a job, any job I could get, just to get some money coming in. I did it for 18 months, and it was nothing to do with the business. It was consultancy managing temporary labor spend for the governments in the UK, Richmond County Council and Wandsworth. And... Wow, it was completely far off track. Yeah, yeah, and I. But what was great with it was that they gave me. I had to manage my own diary, right? And managing my own diary and working remotely, I was able to have. I literally would sit there with my laptop on the film, and my laptop on this business, my BlackBerry on that business, my BlackBerry on the film business, and I would do both of them at the same time. Not that they ever knew this, right? Until probably this moment, right? Um, And you know, but it was. I, accru- I accumulated holiday whilst I was working for this company and I got my financially got myself back to a point where I was like, okay, I'm okay, I can breathe for a bit. And in my holiday, I shot my first film, which I, I financed going door to door, different, just running around anyone I could meet, put 500 bucks in, put a grand in. Uh, which I'm going to interrupt real quick. How much of, of making movies is raising money? Yeah, it's a lot of that. It's a lot of like it. If you're going to make movies, like that's what some, some people don't understand. If you're going to make movies, you're, you're going to be knocking on doors asking for money. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a lot of that. And when you, what you start to realize is that every film, depending on which game you're in, if you're in the studio world or if you're in the independent world, it's different, right? There's different ways to skin the cat, so to speak. Um, an indie movie, you'll always need, I always work on the basis you need some sort of equity in each project to make it make sense. Um, but I have done movies, like my second movie I did um, was with the Weinstein Company, when the Weinstein Company were a good company to be working with. They financed it with a UK company, and I sold the when US. When fax machines were around. When fax machines, and I think we signed it on the fax. Um, and it was, and the Weinsteins and Metrodome in the UK financed this film, and my partners and I, the two directors and, and myself and all the crew, basically any profit was ours, right? So we every single territory we sold outside of the UK and the US was profit to the filmmakers, which was great. 
Uh, we had a sales agent selling the movie from a commission stance, which was quite aggressive. But we were making money on the territories, right? So it, the thing for me is it became... I didn't enter the film business to make horror films, right? And I did that because at the time it was the best way to enter the business. It was the easiest way to shoot something which was cost effective and probably you could you could look at it on the basis of maybe there was an upside for investors to potentially go and make the next Texas Chainsaw Massacre. That was the that was my kind of you know my plan with it, right? And what started to happen was I started to get a reputation in the UK as the go-to horror producer, um, which I was telling Jaime about two days ago, right? Yeah. Um, and people don't know it. And I, I know that about you, right? And I said, yeah, because I did my best to not be that, right? I wanted to... Because you might be trapped in that forever. Right, and I didn't really want to do that. I felt like I had a lot of stories I wanted to tell, which for me, I don't care what the genre is. You know, I don't care if it's horror or it's thriller or it's action. I just want to tell great stories, right? Um, and I felt like I was not saying getting typecast, but I was not liking that reputation quite so much. I think my first six movies were horror, you know, and it was starting to be, this is the guy, right? Now I look at Jason Blum and I think, could have done that, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, but equally, I couldn't have been further from it when I came here. The first film I did when I came to LA was Elsa and Fred, which was a, a Latin American, I think it was an Argentinian movie, which we remade. Beautiful movie about um, two people coming to the end of their lives, and it's about you're never too old to fall in love, right? Um, and that was Shirley MacLaine and Christopher Plummer, and Jaime was in that movie. Really? Right? i got to check um, that one out. Yeah, so I couldn't have gone further away from it at that point. But as I said, for me, man, it's, it's just simply about I want to make great movies, great stories, things which 20 years, 30 years' time, we still talk about it over a beer, right? That's yeah. the objective. Yeah. What's What's your favorite movie of all time? What's your favorite movie that you've made, and what's your favorite movie in general? You know, I mean, I would say on the favorite movie thing, it always comes down to what frame of mind you're in, right? Yeah. If you're having a bad time, I'd throw the Shawshank Redemption on because yeah. I just think it's a, because a movie about hope. Pretty fucking yeah. It's great. Um, the first film I saw in the cinemas very special to me. Back to the Future, right? Yeah. Um, it's so funny, I was at this Oscars breakfast, what, probably uh, a few weeks back, and the, they asked that question to all the producers who were up for best picture. And what you start to see is now a younger generation's coming in. I'm 44 now, right? Um, the younger generation's coming in. Our reference points are now things like the Goonies, Back to the Future, right? They're the reasons why we started making movies. Um and Back to the Future is something which, because it was the first film I saw in the cinema and I was, what, seven, six or seven years old, it really resonated with me. It made, it made me feel, this is magic, right? And wanted me, and I didn't even realise it, but it inspired me to, you know, take camcorders and go and shoot stuff in car parks and stuff like that with my friends. And dude, it's gone full circle right now because I have a project which I'm developing called Great Scott which is a homage to Back to the Future, right? Um, And we're we're so privileged because Bob Gale, the co-creator of Back to the Future, is a big supporter of the movie. Loves the project, uh, thinks it's going to be the perfect accompaniment to the brand because there's never going to be another Back to the Future. Um, And it's been a real big supporter, liking what we're trying to do with it. It's kind of like a blinded by the light, if you ever saw that, about the kid who um, um, finds Bruce Springsteen. You know, and it changes his life in the UK. It's a beautiful movie. Um, and we're trying to do something with with that movie, which is it homages, and as Bob says, it's a love letter to Back to the Future. But it's about a kid in society who doesn't fit in. And it, in 1985, it's a different era where... Um, you don't you're not you don't watch a film day and date right and day and date in the film business means that it gets released in the same place the same time in every country right which was originally bought out to stop piracy and online piracy and things like that but back in 1985 that wasn't the case so in the US in July I think it was back to the future got released mm-hmm. and it didn't get released till the end of the year in the UK was it in what year I think it was 1985 1985 yeah yeah 85 so I think it was July, June or July, and then December, January, I think it was, it, it got released. I always get my dates mixed up because I have people trying to 
pushed me to do it. There's a, a Latin American themed movie at the moment, yeah. and the dates are slightly different between Mexico and the UK. Um, but I think it's a really beautiful project because what it's about is, and it's so relevant to today's world, it's about a kid who doesn't fit in, doesn't feel he's enough in this world. And with social media and these kind of things, um, I think today more now than ever, people struggle with identity, right? And he, in our film, doesn't know himself and his parents are divorcing and stuff like that. And his dad's this kind of character who, you know, kind of um, all he does is lay about and play game shows and he wins the Price is Right game show in England and wins a trip to Florida. And whilst he's there to get away from the bickering parents, the kid goes and watches a movie, Back to the Future. And it kind of changes his outlook on life. And he decides that when he goes back to um, England, he's going to reinvent himself as Marty McFly. So that's what he does. So, um, And it becomes, a, a you know, a, 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 I think a journey for him of discovery where he starts to realise that, you know, he doesn't need it, the, the McFly thing becomes like a cloak, right? Of this is who I I can be and I can be accepted. A bit like in Back to the Future, where McFly becomes Calvin Klein. It's the same sort of thing, right? Um, and he, um, but he has to come to a he has to realize along the way that he's enough just as just as he is, right? Yeah. Um, and I love those kind of movies because for me, they're they're things which it's really important to try and make stuff which people can identify with, right? That's Relate yeah. to, yeah. They can identify in, in a in a in a good story, you know the the big problem right now with these these movies. It, it seems like there's no there's no story. Uh, a perfect example when I watched the the, the newest Superman, uh, yeah. Man of Steel, the first one. All these graphics and all this, laser. I fell asleep. Yeah. I I think it's the first time I fell asleep in a movie theater. I've never fallen asleep in a movie theater. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, how fucking boring was this movie? This movie was, was it, it he was a cool Superman, you know? He's, yeah. just, he's one of the buffest British dudes I've ever seen in my life, right? You know, it's a good Superman, it's good graphics, but the story just just wasn't there. Yeah. Then you look at the old Superman movies, and it's like the graphics were shit. Yeah. They were dog yeah. shit. Yeah. Somebody was moving classics, cave. Right? They're classics. But the storylines were so yeah. fucking amazing. Yeah. You know, yeah. Th- another famous, uh, you know, st- uh, example is the first Jaws. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons the first Jaws was so good, you, I'm, I'm sure you've heard the story. Yep. The shark didn't work. Yeah. Yeah. They, they were filming. The budget was there. Let's film. They threw it in, in, in the ocean, and they never practiced it in seawater, ocean yeah. water. It fucking rusted. Yeah. There yeah. was no shark. Yeah. So what did they do? They put more to the storyline, and they yeah. added, and now it was like this suspense, and you're getting into the story and the family. 100%. And, and those, it, it, it's exactly what, what you're talking about, mm. that like, that's so important. Mm. But right now it's like, oh, we have CGI and we can make anything look like anything and let's do it. And, yeah. and, and, and the quality of movies are kind of going down. The story of it. or I, the agree. S- I don't know if it's the story or the script because there's things that like, it has all the potential in the world because mm-hmm. the acting's good, the cast is good, the director's good, but then it just, I mean, I've seen so many shitty movies lately. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I mean, and TV's got so good now as well. Right, Netflix. Netflix is so good, and there's so many great shows. I mean, and, and, and then you get eight or nine episodes to like invest in. Yeah, and 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 get to be part of that journey. Yeah, that, yeah. That it's it, it almost makes it seem like how the fuck are you going to get into an hour and a half movie? It's true, right? I mean, I started watching. I don't know if you've seen it. Started watching Shrinking. Have you seen that? Mm-mm. It's really I good. Think you mentioned this. Huh? Yeah, it's really good. It's um, it's Jason Segel. It's Harrison Ford. Um, it's on Apple, and it's it deals with it, it deals with grief, right? But it does it through a psychologist kind of lens at times, right? Where and it's so great, it's almost like Jason Siegel's there, and he's supposed to be the psychologist, kind of being the the therapist to people who come in, and at, he at times they're the therapist back to him because he just he just lost his wife. That's the setup of the show, right? Yeah. Um, but it's I think TV and film and stuff like that i mean there's certain things which have really worked over the last few years afterlife ricky gervais's show as well on netflix fantastic Amazing, show yeah. and it's tapping in and it's it's starting to deal with themes which were at some points a bit at some point they were a bit taboo like grief people don't want to talk about it they don't want to see it 
but the way he approached it with that humor to it but then also the heart is very similar to what i think is why something like shrinking is working so well right because it's got the same kind of elements to it it's the reason why we all like ted lasso right i don't know if you've seen that yeah yeah i just got into yeah but ted lasso is great as well because it's just it's a fish out of water we know this guy shouldn't be managing in the in the premier league but we kind of love him, right? And what he stands for and the way he deals with things. The way he takes his role and, yeah. It's fantastic. And it's like, it's, I think those kind of shows are things which inspire us all, right? To think there's a, there's a, just being good to people, being nice to people, actually, it can come back round, right? How, how much, because um, it's interesting, because if you talk about movies in a positive way, like I watched this movie and it inspired me to do this. And when I watched yeah. that movie, you know what fucking, I was going through a bad moment and it clicked and I was yeah. like, you know, yeah. but, mm, yeah. you know, and, and we can give a bunch of those examples. Sure. How much of that exists on the negative side? Like how many people watch a horror movie and like, Oh yeah, I can do that. <laughs> oh yeah. Like, Oh, so that's how he used his machete, you know? Yeah. yeah. And like, you're probably right. You're yeah. probably right. Inspiration kind of stuff. I mean, um, the news kind of does that too when they're like, "Oh, this guy killed fifteen people." Yeah. The way he did it, yeah, you know, yeah. No, I don't. I mean, I, I think that's a, a fair point, right? I mean, I don't know, I don't know any examples of that, but I'm sure they're out there in terms of someone emulating their favorite killer or something like that and going off and copycatting what they saw Jason Jason do in Friday the Thirteenth or something like that. I mean, it's but uh, but I feel like. In my experience, and knowing the horror world as I do, that audience is super loyal, super faithful. And, you know, even though you're dealing with dark themes at times, they, you know, they're, they're the most friendliest group of people. And as, as I said, super loyal to their art and all this kind of stuff. And the festival circuit in that particular genre is just incredible, right? It's almost like everyone kind of knows each other. Um, I've been lucky enough to have films play in major festivals in that horror kind of circuit. Um, and I think it's often a case where people will say horror is the culprit for some of those things. But in my experience, not the case at all, right? I would say that it's, you know, it, it, it's quite the opposite. They're the coolest people. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, so, I, so I, to answer your point, I haven't seen that, right? I've never seen that kind of happen. Right. Uh, it's that extreme. No. Uh, my notes say uh, your most recent project, Madness in the Method, yeah. is a notable is notable for being Stan Lee's last ever movie. It's very true. Can you talk about that? What would it was like to be work with Stan Lee and? Well, we kind of that movie how we shot that, that influenced you like it's amazing, right? I mean, we shot we shot that movie here in Eagle Rock. Um, we shot it here, and we we then also shot in the UK just for because at the time. Uh, Brexit was happening, right? Uh, no, I'm good at the moment, thanks, buddy. Um, the Brexit was the aftermath of Brexit was going on. So what happened was currency had crashed. So for us, our financing was in dollars. Going back to your investment situation, we had to decide how do we do this. So we came up with the, the kind of concept to shoot LA, right? Because the whole movie set in LA, and establish this is an LA world, and then go and shoot. I think we shot like 25 days in the UK, right? And doubling for in Feb January and February in very cold England for Los Angeles, which we kind of pulled it off, which was a bit of a battle. But I remember on, I think it was the fifth day of shooting, we'd been trying to get Stan. We were trying to, Jason, the director, Jason Muse from Jane Silent Bob, he, he was good friends with Stan. And what we were trying to do, because it was Jason's directorial debut, was surround him with good people. Um, people who could really help elevate the project and Stan was someone who we'd earmarked to do something for us. And I remember on the morning, we were supposed to be shooting in the afternoon, right? And we got a call. Stan just from nowhere calls Jason and says, yeah, I can do I can do something for you now. Okay, great. Now. Yeah. Right. So it's like, we're like, okay, it's like nine o'clock in the morning. Every All the crew just shot a night shoot the night before then no one's going to want to come and shoot this. Yeah. So Fuck that. Everybody get over there. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I called Charles, who was my line producer, and I said, look, we, we, got, a, we got a code red situation here. Um, Stan wants to shoot now. And Charles was like, it's Stan Lee, right? Stan Lee. So right. he calls around. The whole crew show up early, like seven hours early or so, straight away. Fantastic. All there 
on point. Now the next problem is we didn't have any scenes for him, and it showed that he wasn't in the script. So we had to write the script as we're driving over his scenes for this cameo in the movie. God. It was bonkers, you know. And he so he shot his scenes, and then he uh, he did this. It was incredible. So he, he shoots his stuff. He knows his line, gets his lines, says his things, and then he says, "Look, I have to go because I have to go back. I have to go now and spend some time with my wife because." Um, it's we have this ritual. I think it was every dinner or every lunch or every dinner he never missed. So he wanted he had to go back to go and spend lunch or dinner with her. I forget what it was at the time. Um, but it was it was an insight into a man who, even though he's incredibly successful, still had this rock solid foundation behind him where he realized I'm going to go and do what I'm going to do, and I'm going to go and do it for a guy I like. You know, whatever age he was, 88 at the time, um, he respected Jason. Wow. He respected Jason. He'd known Jay for a long time. Um, and I think he'd seen Jay go through, he had a lot of troubles with, with well publicized in terms of um, um, addiction, Jason. And I think Stan had seen this kid kind of grow and seen what he'd been through and wanted to be there, right, to help him on this moment, which was his directorial debut, which for me was just badass right for someone that age to come and do that incredible um and you know it's one of those things you put the calls into people you don't think they're going to come back to you this guy called back i can do it right now and for you Jay. Up. comes and does it um and then he leaves to go and spend time with his wife i mean incredible right and it was like yeah i do that every day go and spend i think it was lunch or dinner i think it was dinner dinner time i always spend it with my wife every day no matter where i am whether she'll, she'll be with me or... That's so amazing. It's amazing, man. And it, and, it, and it tells you, I think, that there is... There's a lot of people out there and they'll talk about how you should live your life and things like that. I mean, that guy had been there and he'd done it and he was super successful. He was Mr. Marvel. Um, and he was still there for his friends and there for his wife. Amazing, right? How, how much how much of that do you think is... is It's his character because it's his character versus he's a man from like a different time like yeah. like back in those days you know like you said he was 88 yeah you yeah know, back in his 20s 30s 40s like people didn't have anything else except for the reward yeah. so like how yeah. much how much would you say is would it be that versus this guy was like that period i think he i think from my what i felt was that he had a great value system, which obviously had been instilled in him, which I think is also always crucial to anyone who's going to be successful in terms of being able to, um, you know, kind of put that extra work in, right? Work when other people don't want to work, but also be able to have that balance of that good system behind him. Um, I feel like he, he had the right, I think it's time is key. Like you talk about no internet, no distractions, focus on the things he really wanted to focus on great support system someone who probably was behind him you know Family, all the way parents yeah. people present yeah guiding them and value and, and everything you hear about him is that as i said that value system which was instilled in him and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it and the work ethic he had um but it's just he got that balance right somehow it was perfect for him right when you last saw him how how long was it before he passed not long as the last last movie he ever shot. Um, I don't think like a was, year or two. Yeah, I don't. I, I think it was probably a year. You know, because he was because he was going to go and do Jay and Silent Bob. What a loss. Yeah, and then he and then that kind of um, that would have been the last movie he did, but he didn't. He he passed away, or he was too weak, I think, at the time to do it. Sadly, um, but yeah, I mean, the guy. I mean, he lived a great life. He lived a great life, and he yeah. left a great la legacy. So, like, he did, yeah. And we're still we're still appreciating that to this very day, right? Now, let's see. Uh, you've you've uh, you've produced multiple independent movies and budgeted a total of seventy, now roughly a hundred million. Yeah. How do you approach budgeting <coughs> for your projects, and what strategies do you use to ensure that your films will both be uh, commercially successful and artistically? Well, <clears throat> I mean, from a financing level, one of the things you want to do on projects a lot of the time is you want to try and gauge market as you develop it, right? So um, what we have, and we have in the film business things like the Cannes Film Festival, which people will know about, but part of that Cannes Film Festival is the Cannes market, 
right, where right. sales agents who are a bit like a yeah, crude example, they're, they're much they they they're a bit like real estate agents selling or showing the property, right? But what they're doing is they're showing the film, right? And sometimes that's a film which hasn't been made and they're trying to pre-sell it. Sometimes it's a, a film which has been finished. What I try to to do on my projects is I try to um, I, I try to go step by step. And my, my first step is once I have a so before I even really work on the script too much, I already have an idea from a genre level what it is and how, I, as I said to you, I, I understand what the trailer and the poster will probably look like for this piece. And then I'll look to try and find good sales partners, sales partners who are going to help me uh, gauge the market for a project like this. Should I put Tom Cruise in it or Carl Urban in it, right, or whoever? Um, and with them, I'll be able to then start to reverse engineer how the project is going to work um, for the market to ensure that it's actually um, something which is going to be financeable, firstly. Uh, which is half the battle, but secondly, has a chance, the best chance possible to recoup money for any investment which is in, right? Uh, those two things are obviously crucial. And it's a real balance because in order to do that, often in the independent world, you're looking at budgets and you're thinking, you know, I've got X actor in this who's going to charge X amount of money, right? And the more money they charge, often, unless the market responds in a positive way to them, it, it's you know, the film will, will have to cost less money to actually shoot it. You have what we call call the above the line, which is what the talent kind of gets paid from. And then you have the below the line, which is what the production costs, right? In terms of how much, if you and I were in a movie compared to Tom Cruise and whoever, um, it's a different matrix, right? So I always look at it and I want the films to, uh, you know... It, I had a call. Uh, I remember having a call on a project with Jean Claude Van Damme, and Van Damme says to me, "He reads a script which I send him, and the agent had told me, you know, he doesn't, you know, he, he probably won't give you any notes, you know, but he, if he likes it, you'll know, right?" Yeah. So I get on the call, and he's got notes. I'm like, I wasn't prepared for this at all, right? You told me you didn't have any notes, and anyway, so <laughs> he's got notes, and in one of his notes, which was fantastic, he said. Rob, there's too many action scenes in this movie, right? And this is like a this is a movie called Death Penalty. It's a it's like a prison escape movie through the desert, right? It's about the last seven guys on death row and they escape, and the, these bounty hunters go after them. And there's this kind of this rogue sheriff who's decided today's the day he's going to commit suicide. Finds this kind of prison bus, you know, and becomes like a dog in the bone. And it's a three way run and chase through the desert. Very cool popcorn movie, Mad Max yeah. meets Con Air, that kind of thing. Um, JC reads it uh, and he's like there's too many action scenes right you, you're not going to be able to afford to do them well and it was really interesting listening to him because he was like this circles back to your point about financing versus creativity right um, it taught me a lot because it was like this guy's been there and he's done it and, and he's been a big star in you know the other side of the camera and He's telling me in a genre, I don't, my genres were horror and romantic comedy. And I hadn't done action yet. So it was like, okay, um, I should listen to it. I'm, I'm a great believer in, you know, the, the age old thing of surrounding yourselves with people who are more successful than you. And clearly in action, he was more successful than me at the time. So I had to take that advice on board and say. At the time. At the time. Um, and I, I had to kind of take that advice on board and look at it on the basis of he's right. And he had said to me, because I always, when I look at projects, I have to have four, what I call four marquee moments in the movie. Is it really important for me? Um, and I want one in the first act, two in the second act, and one in the third act. And for me, they're the moments where if you and I go to the cinema or we go to the theatre, whatever way you want to define it. Um, when we leave and we go and have a beer, we're talking about those moments. Do you remember when that happened in the film, right? They're my marquee moments. So I need four of them in every film. And if they start getting taken out of scripts, I start to lose interest in them because they're the reasons why I'm attracted to the project. Anyway, Van Damme establishes, reads the scripts and says to me, you've got so many big moments, right? And he was so right. It was This was a script which was trying to do too much, right? It was trying to be something which we were trying to do it for, I don't know what the, the 
eight million or something like that as a budget at the time. And it was, we just couldn't afford to do it well. So it started to make me, after that conversation, hone my skills, look at it through a slightly different lens. I'm a great believer in, you know, that it's all about how you frame things and optics and stuff like that. And I started to look through, look at the script through a different lens based on great feedback from a guy who's been there and done it, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, he kind of, he opened my eyes that we were trying to do too much and what would have been happening would have been we've been trying to outdo the last scene all the time, right? Because there were so many big moments in it. Right. So we went, we actually, that script right now, we're just honing it even a few years on. And that's what happens a lot of the time with this. You Scripts get put back in the drawer and sometimes it's a different, you know, a different time for it and things like that. Um, but it's, it was, it, it was, it didn't have that balance. It was trying to be too big for the budget. It probably would have ended up costing too much and then, the action sequences wouldn't have been so good. So now what's happened? Too over the top. Yeah, we wouldn't have been able to do it well, and I'm, I'm a great believer in that as well. You've got to try and do, you know, you, it was a genre I wasn't familiar with. Now I'm much more familiar with it. But you've got to, when you do those moments, they're your big moments in it, and you've got to sell the dream at that point. These are the moments where people are going to talk about them. So now that script is much more refined Right, and we're still honing it um, to a point where there's less big, big moments, and we're spending more time with using your jaws analogy, right? Character, right? And yeah. Because ultimately, character and story is what we care about, right? We can, uh, I could, you know, I can talk to you all day long and listen to your story, right? And it's something which interests people, right? Yeah. Um, so character and story are everything and i think that's the, that that's the thing where I, how i'm looking at my stuff covid was a big reset for me i was looking at my projects and i you know you, you it was one of those kind of moments where um you know i'm one of those guys who I, I wake up and i have these reminders on my phone and every morning one of the things which i see every morning on my phone is why are you doing these projects right and it's a, one of those things which makes me think why am i investing my time in this right it has to be something which i feel can go and do something and i felt like some of the projects which i was doing prior to covid some were more money driven and some were creative in terms of really what i wanted to do and now i'm in a position where everything i want to do is it's got to have a purpose it's got to have something i think thematically where an audience is going to identify with it um because that's where i think you make something which can be important and that's what i want to do Make yeah. important stuff, right? Stuff which, like I said, 20, 30 years time, we can have a beer and still talk about. It. Go like you did about Jaws. You remember it, right? Yeah. It's there. It's ingrained in you, you know. And that's always the objective. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget a movie like that. I mean, the times are different, you know. Mm. Uh, for this movie, would you consider like the two things that I would like brainstorm is one? Would you just make it into two parts, kind of like a Kill Bill, where it's like maybe two movies? Is, is an idea. You know, so funny because we in the we actually started to develop it during COVID as a series. We thought it had a and lot that was to ask it. A series, yeah, yeah, because it's it's a movie which is built in the old kind of Western kind of style, like Magnificent Seven. These the last seven guys escape, but it's a, a mid apocalyptic world, which is basically it's a, it's a the reason we brought it back and we're now redeveloping it is because it. Um, Climate change has become so big and it, it presents a future to the world of what we're doing to this planet without it being too preachy and over the top. It's one of those things where thematically the whole movie is about second chances and it presents a world where California is now just a desert dust bowl. The whole world is gone, right? One half's underwater, the other half isn't. No, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, but the, so in our world, um, water world, <laughs> it's it's sand world in this one. Um, bit mad, Maxi. Um, yeah. But it's so it's kind of. I, I think you've got to look at these things and try and figure out the right route for it. For us, we started to develop it as a series, and then we felt, you know, we heard things like The Last of Us were starting to be. They were getting some traction. We thought maybe it's not the right route. Um, so we've now at the moment going back to do it as a movie. Um, but we see it as a, a franchisable project. So feeding into your point, it could be, you know, like the purge one, two, three, four, five, right? That's, right. that's where we're, how our mindsets are now looking at it. Right. 
Let me see. I think we have one more question here. Well, we have a few more questions, but we got time for one more question. Uh, what projects are you currently working on, and what can, what can the audience expect from your upcoming work? Um, or is this that one? No, I got I got lo lots of projects. I have one which is um, a fantasy adventure I'm going to do, um, and that is hopefully going to go in the summer. We're just trying to get the script honed at the moment. It's always constantly working on the script. That's the one where I'm I'm doing it with the creator of Final Destination. He's just come on doing a pass, which I should have this week. Um, so I have that one. I have a uh, an animation which I'm going to do. Um, we have. A lot of, I would say, a lot of big names attached to it, which I can't get into too much detail what they are. But that's basically a uh, an animation in the world of um, South Park, that kind of you know sausage party, that kind of adult uh, animation um, about this kind of this kind of loser character who um, um, has to go and save the world and is completely ill-equipped to do so. Um, and that's based on a YouTube, a very successful YouTube channel. So I have that one. I have a best-selling book out in the UK, um, which is a romantic comedy I'm looking to do. Um, I have one which uh, I'm going to do behind me, in fact, which is about, is very autobiographical. It's about a British guy, British. it's about a British movie producer who meets a Mexican girl. Um, and it's it deals with culture. Um, and it plays around with the concept of La Padida, right? The, the permission. Um, and in that story, <laughs> you, the British guy has to get the permission from a Mexican psychologist, oh. right? Who obviously doesn't want him to marry the daughter. Um, and that's one we've had a load of great feedback on. It's kind of much in that kind of meet the parents, um, big fat Greek wedding, that kind of world, crazy rich Asians it's been compared to. Um, and I'm really excited about that. So I wrote that actually with my wife, who's Mexican, um, it's funny, man. At the beginning, true story. Yeah, it's a true story. At the beginning, I was making so many screw ups in the in the understanding of the two different cultures. Because when you get into those kind of relationships, you you don't un you just kind of think this is the way it should be. Being a, a brick guy, right? It's kind of how I think it should be. And my wife thinks, well, no, Mexican ways like this, right? So there was a lot of kind of cultural differences. Um, oh, so different. So different. <laughs> yeah. So different. And then a Mexican woman. Exactly. Let alone not a Mexican. Like Mexico is like, you know, but a Mexican woman's even more traditional. Very, very traditional. Um, so we, <clears throat> so I, I was going to, at the time when I, st I started dating her, I started to make all these screw ups and I started to make notes of them. I said, you know, I should write a book, basically, what not to do when dating a Mexican, right? And it was going to be one of those kind of pocket books yeah, you yeah. put in the, in the airport, right? Um, and then I started developing it with her, and I was like, you know, this is crazy. I'm a movie producer. This is a movie. So we have that. We've developed. So we have that one, which is going to be a proposal movie. Um, and then with the same characters, there's going to be a funeral movie and a, a Christmas movie at the moment, right? That's the plan with it. Yeah. Um, and um, we're really excited about that. It's super funny. Um, and um, high hopes for that. I have the, the uh, Back to the Future homage movie. That's right. um, yeah, yeah, and I've, and I've got one I'm going to direct as well, which is um, a movie called Kindred, which is uh, kind of like a homage to Misery. It's like a, um, a slow-burning thriller, which I, I'm doing with um, Stephen Amell from Arrow. Um, it, you know, wow, so you got your hands full. Yeah, I like to I like to do those things, and I, you know, and I run my I run a, a jewelry business thing. I told you with my wife as well, right? She's a fantastic jewelry designer, That's so I right. kind of you know I I kind of help her with that when what, she needs what, me. What's her website? What's her, what's the brand? It's called Ali Weston um, A L E, as in ale, right? Alejandra uh, AliWeston dot com, um, and she's been she's been killing it, right? So this year she was in she's been in Vogue, um, she. Her, she's now got stuff in Beverly Hills, Rodeo Drive. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, and she's just doing a collaboration with Milk Jar and Cookies on um, Wilshire Boulevard, a fantastic uh, cookie company down there, and she's basically created uh, cookie jewelry. So she's doing... That's I think awesome. It, That's going to hit good. Dude, in the next so in the next two weeks, she's going to release the chocolate chip diamond cookie, which she does. Um, and then... Um, you know, and she's she's already released one, which was more of a enamel heart shaped fourteen karat gold piece, and 
Um, and they're just, and Milk Jar are such a great bunch of people down there as well. So it's a really good collaboration she's doing. So, I, you know, I, I kind of help her on that sort of things as well um, with whatever knowledge I can give from a jewellery perspective, which is not my not my, my kind of world. Not your cup of tea. Um, not my cup mm. of tea, but businesses, right? So the business side of things, I can help her, but just to try and give her a platform to let her kind of design because she's fantastic as a designer. The thing she did, which made her pop, was this diamond cheeseburger, which was a 20 diamond cheeseburger she carved in in wax with fire and stuff like that. It's nuts. I got to see that. You got to see it, man. I'll show it to you. Yeah, so um, so she's so she's she's been doing a thing. So super busy, man, as always. Well, Robert, Rob, congratulations on all your success. It's been a true pleasure knowing you. Uh, let's do this again. Yes, brother. Um, and until next time. Thank you, man. Thank you. Appreciate it.